Hello and welcome to Natural Health with CNM, the College of Naturopathic Medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Sanchez. In today's episode, I'm joined by internationally acclaimed scientist Robert Verkirk. Robert is going to be discussing how to create and regenerate health naturally through diet and lifestyle. He'll be explaining why we need to change the way we think about our health, the driving factors that contribute to disease, and why the current healthcare system doesn't promote long-term health. Robert will also run through the 12 areas of the human constitution and how we can optimize each area to supercharge our health. Robert Verkirk is an internationally acclaimed scientist with over 35 years experience in sustainability, specifically in the fields of agriculture, food production and healthcare. He has a master's and doctorate degrees from Imperial College London, where he continued his research for a further seven years as a postdoctoral research fellow. In 2002, he founded the Alliance for Natural Health International, an independent non-profit organisation that promotes natural, sustainable and biocompatible approaches to healthcare, using the tools of good science and good law. Its four core activities are campaigning, activism, education and research. ANH International's mission of Love Nature, Live Naturally covers a diverse range of issues related to natural health and its sustainability. Hi, Robert. Welcome and thank you for joining me today. It's great to have you on the show. Michelle, great to be on the show too. Now, taking control of our health and empowering ourselves with knowledge has never been more important, especially after the past year. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on how we can do this effectively and also more about ANH's Great Health Reset. But before we get into it, please, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your experience in the industry? Yes. Well, my background is really in ecology. I'm an environmental scientist by original training. I, I have three science degrees. I did a, a master's after doing my main first degree in ecology. I did my master's and PhD in sustainable agriculture at uh, Imperial College London. Mm-hmm. And it was really there that I started to become aware that those of us who were really interested in food to produce very high quality food within an ecological setting what has now become regenerative agriculture, were producing food that really did have an impact in health. And I remember during my time at Imperial College, I would ask the medics when we would have, you know, gatherings of academics across different disciplines about some of the really interesting components in plants that we were working on that had profound effects on stabilizing insect populations, natural enemy populations that would be able to be used instead of pesticides. And pretty much every compound I mentioned at that time, I was really working intensively with with cruciferous crops, so the the cabbages, broccoli, all the Southeast Asian equivalents, Mm -hmm. pak choy, etc. And and these have um, potent anti-cancer compounds in them. And it was extraordinary that when you would talk to oncologists or cancer researchers, they it was like there was this disconnect between these two disciplines. And so I got more and more interested in, in what was happening in nutrition. I also was had been very outspoken at Imperial College about a general problem with dietary simplification. What what we were increasingly doing is eating fewer and fewer plants that were grown all over the world that were often deteriorating in quality or had been harvested early so they didn't actually generate their full complement of of nutrients 
and they're just sitting in supermarkets and then often at the bottom of a refrigerator drawer. And there was very little understanding of, of these problems. And yet it became apparent these, this poor diet was probably related to the increasing problem with, with what we now think of as non-communicable or preventable diseases, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative conditions, etc. Mm -hmm. and, and really at that time, I also, as an expert in the issues around agricultural sustainability and the problems that, that we were facing in terms of producing high quality food for the public, I was also being um, asked to be to support some of the natural product companies and generally wasn't a big fan of, you know, powders and tablets and capsules. I thought you could get everything in, in, in real food. And mm -hmm. of course, it is more and more difficult to do that. And then one of the US companies said, look, we're trading in Europe and we're, we're struggling with a piece of European law that's coming through called the Food Supplements Directive, and we've got all these natural sources of nutrients. And from what we can see, we can't sell them because it only allows certain nutrients. And when I looked at the, the EU permitted list, the Annex 2 and the Food Supplements Directive, I was pretty horrified because they were all chemical forms of vitamins and minerals. Mm -hmm. And that was my big aha moment when I realized there is something really wrong here. Here we are kind of creating a regulatory regime that allows for chemical forms of nutrients and discriminates against natural forms. And really, that was what birthed the Alliance for Natural Health that I set up now 19 years ago. And, and we are really all about how you work with nature, how you, if you like, translate some of the issues that we've learned about in agriculture and the development of regenerative agriculture to healthcare so that you can have regenerative healthcare that is not just focused on disease, but is focused on creating health. So we're really, what we do in our nonprofit is really try and accelerate that transition. Absolutely. And thank goodness you did, because the work that you guys are doing is amazing. Can you talk to us about some of the projects or the campaigns that you're running at the moment? Well, yes, we, like so many other people, we have been immersed in the COVID issue for the last yes. 12 months. So that is, that has dominated everything and put some of the major projects we're doing slightly on the back burner. They're absolutely not um, fully off the back burner. They're still ticking along, but the priority has been seeing our way through um, what has been happening around COVID and try to keep, if you like, a clear view, an objective view of what is happening scientifically, socially, and politically. And there is no doubt that, that the kind of limitation of information that we now see because of censorship, because of the way in which the media, you know, will pick up certain subjects and really not cover any other subjects, the way in which human rights have been impacted is pretty huge. And of course, right at the center of it all is the fact that, that as a global society now, we put all our eggs in one basket in dealing mm. with the problem via vaccines and trying to ensure vaccine transparency. We've been really leading a campaign for some time on vaccine transparency so that people can make 
informed choices. And of course, at the same time, really pushing very hard to ensure that there is as much information as possible about all the things that people can do naturally to enhance the extraordinary system that we have that protects us against pathogens called the immune system. And it seems that this has really not been very much on the agenda of global authorities like the WHO, national authorities, governments, and then the health authorities. And it really should be. So it's kind of been a bottom-up process where education is key. We've got to talk directly with consumers and with practitioners. There are a whole bunch of doctors and practitioners who actually have been struck off medical registers because they've talked about the importance of maintaining a healthy immune system. So um, just trying to keep a, a compass on what's been going on has been a really big part of it. But our, our central overarching project is really how we, it, it's a sort of a visionary project that's about how we create a new health system. And in many ways, what has happened with COVID now creates an opportunity for that. I mean, here, here we are, we have a d- disease that reflects back on us what is wrong with our health. So people who have dysfunction in their metabolism mm-hmm. or in their immune system, and it may be through older age, but it also may be through a whole range of genetic and environmental factors. They are the exclusive people who really suffer severe disease at the hands of SARS-CoV-2. And, and that's a big wake-up call because it shows you how broad-based, how extensive this non-communicable disease problem has become. And now we have an infectious disease that shines a spotlight on that problem. So we have to find a way of actually creating health and society, which is not dissimilar from saying, right, let's find ways of um, maintaining the car that we drive rather than just waiting for it to break down on the side of the motorway uh, or wait till someone smashes into the side of it, we'll take it to the smash repair it, which is mm-hmm. kind of what we do in medicine. We wait until our system breaks down, then we do something about it. And we we don't have a very good system of warning lights that tell us, give us early indicators of when some of the functions in our body are starting to go wrong. So the great reset health reset project that we're working with, which is essentially a blueprint that describes and envisions a whole way in which communities can function with a whole cluster of different health professionals guiding them, but really with the individual, the citizen being in an empowered situation, using a language that is universal so that if you're an osteopath, a nutritionist, a GP, an oncologist, you can all share a common language with the individual in question. What's happened is we've got so deep in our silos, everyone has a different language. So now even the oncologist can't speak to the nutritionist. They speak a completely different language. The, the TCM practitioner can't talk to the, you know, the, the, the nutritionist either. So we need to have a common language in which a whole, all of the health professionals can share a similar understanding. And then you need a kind of a global method that, that allows us to see how humans function within their ecosystem. And when you start to select the, the kind of 
scientific, social, political system that makes sense there, the underpinning for that for us has come from ecology and system science because we're dealing with systems and we're dealing with an ecological interaction. And so we, we've depicted a 12-domain a system that reflects what it is to be human, all of the key interactions. That, and we now have a whole range of markers that are able to tell us, you know, when function in each of these domains starts to um, diminish so we can do something about it before it actually manifests into a disease that really takes away someone's quality of life and ultimately is expensive on society. It's not a great way of doing healthcare. It is a way of doing disease care, um, which is no longer sustainable. Absolutely. And you're going to talk about some of those domains or the, the 12 domains a bit later on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's it. It is about prevention, isn't it? Rather than waiting like a sitting duck for something to go wrong. Yeah. You know, the, the, the system, it's useful to think of it like a, a mountain, which, which when we're born, we basically are a spring high up in the mountain. That's the upstream side. And then over time, as we live our lives, we, we, run down the mountain to to the estuary and essentially at the moment the kind of healthcare we do is kind of reactive healthcare in the estuary so we've got to find ways of of going upstream understanding when things start going wrong at a much earlier point in someone's life and of course mm -hmm. that means you're having to do healthcare outside of the normal structures of healthcare, the clinics, the hospitals, etc. And you're also having to have people who are not necessarily trained in, in health. They may be tra trained in disease, but they're not much good to you in the community. So we've also got this, this massive development of, of digital systems that now allow data to be very amenable to people on, on, you know, cloud platforms, on, cell phones, mobile phones, etc. We have to take elements from our history that are linked to community, understanding that it is, you know, we are social animals. COVID, the pandemic has shown us what happens when we try and not be social animals, when we distance and we isolate. It's created this rash of mental health problems. And we need to also move away from some of the kind of scientific processes that have caused us to fall into our respective silos of specialism so that no one can talk properly to each other and understand that there are new ways of looking at data. It's, we can call it big data that can inform decisions in this very complex interactive system that is full of feedback loops. And so we need to use some of this modern technology, but understand how it can work, not with necessarily modern interventions. We, we shouldn't keep searching out a silver bullet that's going to have a patent written on the side of it. We, we have to understand how we can function better using all the faculties, all the, the genes and the elements of our environment that have co-evolved over millennia to create a kind of stable, interactive system where all the feedback loops work properly. So that's the kind of process that we believe is the next generation of healthcare. I think the, 
the, the COVID crisis has reminded us that if we put all of our eggs in one basket, we still don't solve the problem. We, we can see mm. as we speak now, again, the emergence of a major problem developing in India. We're seeing immune escape and vaccine escape, and you will carry on just chasing your tail until you develop robust, resilient systems. And, and we, you know, that also involves changing our language, what health is. We should really be looking for resilience in an individual, which means that you can, it, it's how you respond to any stressor, whether it's social stress, psychosocial stress, emotional stress, physiological stress, or even pathogenic stress when your immune system gets hit by a virus. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I highly recommend anyone that wants to learn more about sort of COVID and, and the information because you guys have put some great videos and, and content out there. So check those out on ANH's uh, website. Yeah, you can find all the shortcut, if this is helpful, the shortcut to all our COVID-related material is covidzone.org. Um, you'll also find it on our website, anhinternational.org. And you can look at the Adapt, Don't Fight campaign, which is our key COVID campaign. And the campaign name actually reminds us, you know, of perhaps a different way of approaching this to the way in which governments are encouraging people to approach it. We shouldn't have fear over it. Every now and then throughout our history, a new virus makes its home in, in our species. The relationship is a bit messy early on. It does calm down. We're likely to go through three major epidemic cycles before we reach some stability. So we are likely in in the UK and, and Europe to see another surge of infections. But as immunity starts building and most importantly as resilience starts building, that that the damage done during that cycle should be substantially less. And we have to, if we're going to take a sort of holistic view on the overall issue, we need to be looking as much at the problems that are created by the our national responses to COVID as we are to the reaction our bodies go through when they become infected by the virus. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Now, one of the things you talk about, Robert, in your blueprint for health system sustainability is that in the UK, there's this metabolic disease crisis as, you know, rates, disease rates continue to rise. What are some of the driving factors causing this? Well, yes, the, the, the metabolic disease is, is increasing for many reasons. The first is that diets and our lifestyles are not compatible with our genome. Genetics, basically, our book of life, are relatively unchanged from our hunter-gatherer ancestors. And that's one of the reasons that paleo diets, paleolithic type diet, whatever they are in this day and age, are becoming quite popular because people, when when they start to eat in a pattern that is more like our ancestors, they often feel better. So the the you know, we, we become obsessed with what we eat and what we eat is is obviously highly simplified. It's often highly processed. So when I talk about simplification, what that means is that the diversity of nutrients that we eat is far too limited. So food is information. We're obsessed with this idea that food is energy. So we keep on looking for calories in everything that we eat. And actually, 
it's fairly irrelevant. If you imagine a hundred calories of ice cream and a hundred calories of broccoli, they do two entirely different things to our body because mm -hmm. the information carried in the ice cream versus the information carried in the broccoli is very different. So we need to be thinking about information, and that information comes from largely from the chemical compounds that are within those foods. So if we eat kind of yellow, gray, beige foods all along, and we don't eat colorful foods and diverse foods, when we go to the supermarket, we keep reaching out for the same foods every week. Our body is getting limited information. It's like deciding you're going to learn a new language, but you'll rip 90% of the pages of your new dictionary out and you're just stuck with 10%. You can't speak very effectively. And that's really what's happening. So we, we've got a problem with the amount of information coming in with our food. We've also got a problem with the, the way in which the food is treated post-harvest. So obviously, most of our food, fortunately, comes out of agriculture. Obviously, there are major plans to see more and more of it coming out of laboratories, cell-cultured meat, for example. We have a bit of an issue with that. It's very untried and tested. It's a way of growing proteins, but it doesn't take into account the fact that if we do eat meats, meats are much more than just a protein source. So the, the, so when it comes from agriculture, it then basically that post harvest interval, we, we, most people don't know very much about what happens to their food from the period of harvest to the time they buy it in the shop. You can buy oranges that look as fresh as a daisy, but they may have been sitting in a cold store for 12 months. And during that time, they will have lost most of their vitamin C. So, and obviously, processing is probably the single biggest problem we have. So, you can buy for your kids, for example, a lovely whole grain cereal that's got whole grain written all over the side of it, but it's processed to such a fine degree into such small pieces physically through the mechanical milling process that when you put it into your body, those carbohydrate chains are treated much in the same way as putting a highly processed, you know, a refined carbohydrate into your system. So they contribute. Jenny Brand Taylor, one of the leading researchers out of Sydney University on um, glycemic index and glycemic load has shown, she's shown that many of these new kids whole grain cereals are no different to the body other than the fact that they might give you a few more B vitamins. But from a um, glycemic point of view, the rate at which that carbohydrate is converted to blood sugar, there is, there is no difference at all. And the third thing really that, that's going on is the way in which we treat those foods when they come into our houses. And there is very little respect for the way in which heat or heat-damaged oils or the interaction between sugars and heat, the caramelization process that people love, that they learn often from celebrity chefs, how that creates problems with cross-linked sugars and creates polyaromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines, all these nasty compounds that are carcinogenic. So we wonder why we have a cancer crisis when we 
create carcinogens, often by not respecting um, the way in which we prepare food. So slow cooking, slow food, slow eating is has gone out of fashion, and we like to throw things into hot pans and into microwave ovens and under grills that creates all these carcinogens. And really the fourth part of the problem is the frequency at which we eat. So we, you know, we, we are really designed to eat kind of one, maybe two meals a day. We are designed genetically for starvation, for famine, not for feast. And we now live in a world where food is everywhere in our refrigerators mm. and corner stores and supermarkets. And so the frequency at which we eat never gives our bodies a break. And so we're, we're, you know, every time you eat, your body goes through an immune response. And so this continuous eating, including of foods that, that, that are often allergens. I mean, there are only 14 so-called legal allergens in, in the UK and Europe, but dairy and gluten are two of them. Mm -hmm. And yet our diets are full of these two very common allergens. And that's, again, why the free-from sections in the supermarkets are becoming so popular. And it's, it's fascinating that, that the medical profession on the whole is still tending to say, guys, this is just an illusion. This is just some kind of fad. Why are people bothering? Well, bottom line is people feel better when they exclude. A lot of people feel better when they exclude these allergens from their diet. A lot of people feel better when they eat less often and move to one or two meals a day and start changing their metabolism so that they actually learn to burn fat, which is the absolutely crucial part of the metabolic shift that we need to take if we are to reduce the amount of metabolic disease and cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity are all metabolic diseases. They're right at the center point of this non-communicable disease crisis that we have. And so the book that we're just about to publish is called Reset Eating. We'll tell people exactly how they can go about doing that and how they can essentially keto adapt so they can burn fat, produce ketones, and then diversify the energy sources that the body uses. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll pop a link uh, to the book in the show notes. Now, thank you for explaining that, Robert. It's uh, A lot of people won't be aware of these things. So it's uh, it's really good to highlight those. And we're kind of living in this age of convenience. And as you say, people are eating all the time. People are highly stressed. They're eating on the run, grabbing snacks and all of this stuff. We're creating these diseases ourselves, you know, just by not looking after ourselves properly. Correct. Now, can I just circle back just to that information that you talked about every time we eat food? Because I thought that's a really interesting point. Could you give us an example? So say, for example, somebody eats broccoli and then somebody else has the ice cream. What kind of information? How, how does that translate? Okay. So, so I mean, there, there are multiple pathways that are set off when you start to put information in. The, probably the single most important process is to manage oxidative stress on one hand. So oxidation, essentially the reaction with oxygen that is rusting, is, is actually essential for, 
for the body to function. So we, we for example, our, our vascular system can't function without it. We, we can't dilate. If we're, if we're exercising, we can't actually dilate, vasodilate, dilate our arteries to allow more oxygen to flow through it without oxidation. But we need to get the balance between oxidation and reduction. So many of those compounds are necessary to quench the free radicals that are produced at the point in which oxidation occurs. So every time we exercise as well, we oxidize. But if we don't have the information in there that tells the body how to manage that and switch it off, we start, if you like, prematurely aging. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one form. Uh, another really important process underlying all these non-communicable preventable diseases is systemic inflammation. So th- this inflammatory process re- requires that we have anti-inflammatory compounds that are within our body. So within many of the colored vegetables are antioxidants and anti-inflammatory compounds that help our bodies to quench these kinds of reactions. Another really important process where the information comes in is information that we give to our gut microbiome. We are more microbe than we are human. We've got probably around 10 times as many microbe cells with us, primarily bacteria, but also other microbes, including viruses. And let's not forget at this stage that if we look at our evolutionary history and the nucleic acids that make up our DNA, our book of life, um, 10 to 20 percent of that is actually a viro. So mm-hmm. we wouldn't be here without viruses. So viruses, most viruses, like most bacteria, are not pathogenic. And here we are focusing on these bad guys and disinfecting our <laughs> spaces, our houses. Actually, we need to live in an environment that is full of microbes. We carry microbes on the outside of our body and within our body, and most of them are essential for a healthy life, which is why if you grow up and you keep on going on courses of antibiotics, you actually very often fail to thrive because you don't develop the full complement of microorganisms within the gut. And those microorganisms require particular foods to give them the information to be able to do all the intelligent things that they do to communicate with our immune system to manage this interface between the outer world and the inner world. So critical to that are groups of compounds called polyphenols. So if we look at the you know, purple and blue and red colors in berry fruits, these are crucially important for the microbes in our gut. So if you decide, well, I don't really like berries, you know, I don't really like color food. I like eating chips and, you know, you know, burgers, etc. You really, you're really not putting any of the information that your gut microbes need. And the other thing that they really need is, is substrates in order to breed. And, and those substrates come from fibers. So within if you take a broccoli, for example, we, we can look at all the, the chemical compounds, the glucosinolates, the 
forophanes, for example, within them. The, the there's there's a whole range of different mustard-related compounds that that can act as anti-inflammatories and antioxidants. But let's think of the fiber within the stalk of the broccoli, the bit that a lot of people say, oh, I don't really like the stalk. Mm-hmm. So you cut the stalk off and you throw it in the compost or worse than that, in the bin. But actually what we need to do is take the stalk off, um, slice it thinly, for example, we're going to be making a, a stir fry or a stew or whatever, and put it back in the food because within that stalk, are really important prebiotic fibers for your gut. So, you know, we, we really need to be eating so much more of the plants that we eat. I mean, it, it drives me mad when you buy something like coriander these days in a supermarket. They've cut the roots off. Mm, the yeah. roots are really, I mean, throughout Asia, you know, they're, they're, it's understood the roots are really important. And it's also, even if those roots have got some soil in them, the soil provides information for the body. It can be a direct source of, of minerals. And, and that's why in many primitive societies, people engage in what's called geophagy, where they actually eat soil. But, but the fact that we eat food that has been so heavily washed and cleaned with all the soil removed, we also then miss out on many of the microbes and the fungi that, again, can communicate with our body. So really important to get that information. In, in terms of the gut microbiome, I mentioned that they're really important to as a control system of this interface between the outside and the inner world. If you don't get that right, and then you also keep hammering the body with allergens, what happens is you can move to a point, and then dare I say it, if you add herbicides like glyphosate to the mix, which is you know, essentially an antibiotic. It, it, it uses the shikimate pathway, which was devised, you know, in the 70s specifically for antibiotic use, and and then it was turned into a herbicide. It's now become almost ubiquitous, and if you buy non-organic food, it's now very well demonstrated that the glyphosate residues, including in the cereals that people now you know, are consuming as their dominant source of energy in their diets. That glyphosate is then damaging your, the, the, the gut microbiome so that it can no longer control the processes such as the, the tight junctions in the gut so that we start developing a leaky gut that allows the gut contents to flow into your body cavity, which sets off this systemic inflammatory reaction and then if you keep eating you're eating three meals a day plus three snacks a day you and you've got a leaky gut you move into this permanent state of systemic inflammation and that really underlies all these different diseases and what what's fascinating is when you look at the 30,000 or so different diseases out there and you start moving upstream remember the mountain and the spring we were mm-hmm. talking about you look yeah. upstream what you'll find is that there's a relatively small number of causes and triggers, and they can be, you know, related to the pathogens or the chemicals in your environment. They can also be related to psychosocial causes, so trauma, early life trauma, that set up responses that make it difficult for your system to find stability. But if we spent more time trying to deal with the things that trigger or mediate these dysfunctions, rather than trying to mop up 
the pieces in the estuary when they've manifested into a whole range of different diseases. And we largely only focus on treating the symptoms of those diseases. It's no wonder we've got the crisis we have today. No, absolutely. Absolutely. No, thank you for explaining that. That's really, really key. And I think it, that's it. We've got to sort of take that control back and what, what what can we do that's within our control and how can we start building on that to improve our health? Now, in your ecological terrain blueprint, you talk about the 12 domains of the human constitution, which we've already touched on. Can you please explain briefly what these 12 domains are and how we can support each domain to promote optimal health? Yes. Well, I mean, look, what what we're, we're going to be holding a conference. It's going to be early next year now that brings together a wide range of stakeholders, including people who can help develop you know, apps and different IT systems that allow people to access their data across these 12 systems. But let, let me take you through them. The, the first one is, is really the, the genetics and what we call the epigenetics. So I've talked about the DNA as the book of life, but what we know about that book of life is that it interacts with our environment, both before we're born and after we're born. And during those interactions, I mean, two two key forms of interactions are, are known as methylation and histone modification. The, the signals for that come from the environment, and that in, especially includes what we eat. Mm-hmm. So we have the, the this inbuilt program that's called our DNA, but our epigenetics controls the way that DNA is expressed. So. Even if you have a fairly dodgy book of life, which you really can't help because you got it from your parents, <laughs> you can change the way in which that DNA is expressed. So we, we often think of it in, in the following way, that your genes load the gun, but your environment pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. So that's why people can have profound changes in their lives by understanding you know, particularly where their genetic limitations are, and then changing their diet and their lifestyle, which are the two key factors that will change gene expression. So we, we, when we think of ways of, you know, managing our health, most people think of medicines, but we, we, our genetics doesn't require medicines. We didn't evolve with medicines. We, we evolved with a lot of plants around that have medicinal qualities. And, you know, again, I mentioned this issue of diversity. A study that was done um, a few years ago was looking at one of our more primitive ancestors, the orangutan in in, uh, Borneo rainforest. And it was found that a typical orangutan will feed from about 300 different plants purely for their medicinal value. So that's how they understand the importance of of putting this information and and most people they might consume three four five different vegetables or fruits a week which is just not enough information so they're not really optimizing their their epigenetics if you like Uh, and i mentioned this idea of methylation methylation is just the addition of methyl group and and the methyl groups control how the genes express proteins and where do 
you know, what are rich sources of methyl groups in the diet? Well, cruciferous vegetables are. So, you know, you cut out those cruciferous vegetables at your own cost. The second area is this area of glycemic control and metabolic flexibility. So glycemic control is, is really how you manage your blood sugar. And what's really important is that you, you don't have huge blood sugar spikes and you don't do that often, which is one of the reasons that if you eat less frequently, you're immediately in a much better place. So what tends to have happened with, with dietitians is they get people to eat little and often and the problem is, while that blood sugar spike may not be as acute, it's by, by making it happen often, you, you basically start creating insulin resistance. And insulin is essentially a fat storage hormone. It instructs the body to store fat. So you actually push yourself into metabolic disease by doing that because your blood sugar and insulin as well as glucagon another really important hormone goes out of kilter now metabolic flexibility is is very important it runs alongside your glycemic control because it it determines how you source energy to run your metabolism energy itself that your body uses is atp adenosine triphosphate so we often think of carbs or protein or fat as energy. They're not energy. They're energy carriers because that energy carrier needs to be fed into little organelles within our cells called mitochondria that produce ATP. Now, when we go to school or we go to uni, we tend to learn about the citric acid cycle, the Krebs cycle. That is the cycle that occurs, Hans Krebs discovered it, hence the name, that, that produces ATP from carbohydrate. But it also produces ATP from fats. It also produces it from protein. It also produces it from, coat, from, from ketones. So being metabolically flexible essentially means that you have the ability to use these different energy carriers as your fuel and the most important energy carrier to be able to use is fat and ketone in fact fat and proteins are the two key essential macronutrients carbohydrates aren't even essential to the human body because we can actually produce carbohydrates through gluconeogenesis so and what's happened by people eating such carb dominant diets and eating that carbohydrate so frequently is they literally put their fat burning capacity to sleep. So the ability to beta oxidize fat, if you look at the fat underneath your skin, we call it adipose tissue, that is there to act as a long range fuel tank. It, you know, it's the energy carrier that sits underneath our skin. One of the reasons that people will often get fatter and fatter is because the body does not know how to beta oxidize that fat because it's become so reliant on using carbohydrates. So mm. if you become what we call hypoglycemic, you start getting the shakes because you kind of are running out of carbohydrate. You think you're running out of food, but your body has been trained only to use carbohydrate 
you go, oh, my God, give me a chocolate bar. Give me an energy mm -hmm. bar. Yeah. Give me a, a, a sandwich, which is just highly processed, refined carbohydrates that the body treats in exactly the same way as it does sugar. It extracts glucose at a very rapid rate, gives you a huge glucose spike, and you go, ah, oh, I feel better again. And then three hours later, you need to repeat that cycle. When you are metabolically flexible, your body goes, ah, oh, no more carbs in the system. Why did I go and burn fat? And this is something we need to teach our bodies to do again. We've lost that ability to do it. It's built into every single one of us. And it's something that we need to, 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 to do. We need to get there by eating less often, by reducing the amount of refined carbohydrates in our diet. And again, in our book, we tell you exactly how to do it. But essentially intermittent fasting, doing some physical activity in a fasted state, fasted training can be very, very helpful. You don't want to do it cold turkey. You want to do it slowly over a period of time. I, I learned the hard way. I, I personally, eating a very healthy diet because I'm chemically sensitive, I don't have a great book of life, and I've been, you know, my own learning laboratory for <laughs> all of my life. And um, in my 40s, I started to suddenly gain a lot of weight. And, and so I woke up to understanding more about these physiological processes. And it took me about three to six months to what I would call keto adapt, where I was able to start to use ketones. I, I use a, a pinprick test that measures the BHB, the hydroxybutyrate, beta-hydroxybutyrate level within your bloodstream. So you can see that you're actually producing the key circulating ketone. And I would say it took me two years to really become stable. And now I am, now what am I, almost 61. And I'm really fitter than I've ever been. I can get onto a bicycle. I can ride 70 miles with just water in my water bottle. Great. Because I, I, I burn fat very effectively. And it's really the first time in my life where I've had no kind of fluctuations in my weight. And the big problem I had was I was eating too often. So that's just the third area. So shall I whip <laughs> through it a little bit quick, more quickly? Okay. So the fourth area is the mitochondria. How do you get these energy producing organelles really functioning well? And, you know, th there's lots of ways of doing that. First thing is you need a soup of the appropriate cofactors and nutrients, B vitamins, coenzyme Q10, etc., in your bloodstream for them to be able to work properly. The second thing is you need to trigger them properly. And you can do that by doing short, sharp bursts of physical exercise. So things like HIIT training, you, you can actually, you don't need to get into your, your gym kit to do it. You can, I mean, I, I have a balance board here in the office that I can get on just do two minutes of it. If I've been sitting for a couple of hours working, I'll stand up and just go crazy on my balance board for two minutes. And I'm giving instructions to my mitochondria to say, guys, start building. Because if you don't keep triggering this mitochondrial biogenesis process, which builds both the number and the volume of mitochondria, your body just gets rid of them and you become weaker and weaker. And of course, what happens to people as they get older, they become more and more frail the mitochondrial function just falls away. Mm -hmm. The fifth area is the immune system. 
and people know a thing or two about the immune system, but it is this highly complex system that has an adaptive side, which is the sort of the long-term system that needs to learn about the pathogens. But it's also got this innate side, the system we're born with, which is exists right at the interface between the external environment on the mucosa. If we're thinking about respiratory pathogens like SARS-CoV-2, we're going to be thinking about the the mucosa, the epithelium and the mucous membrane that sits right around our airways. And exactly what happens at that interface in terms of the you know the, the macrophages, the natural killer cells, the, the dendritic cells, this complex of different white blood cells that we're born with that are kind of non-specific and they just attack, they determine how many of these pathogens are able to get into our body. If we don't have an effective innate immune system, it's a bit like having a trap door wide open and a lot of them go in. And then our adaptive system has got to sort of pick up the process, understand what they have to deal with, take a few days to be able to, you know, bring out the big guns in terms of the B cells and the T cells to try and knock it on the head. But if you don't do that quick enough, you the replication rate, say, of the virus is so great that you start to get really ill. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you get really ill, you're also dealing with the cytokine storm, which is the immune system, you know, ramping up all these different um, chemical messages we call cytokines. Um, and, and that actually can be the thing that causes um, irreversible damage and can actually kill you. So it's all about how you modulate both the innate and the adaptive side of your immune system. That requires that you have, again, all the right nutrients, you know, the, the extent of the deficiency that people have in vitamin D and even in vitamin C, as well as zinc, is, is pretty obscene that we're not hearing that on a regular basis from, from government. There's been a study in the UK showing that 40% of people in care homes have levels of circulating vitamin C that is actually at the level of scurvy. Wow. Most people That's think scurvy is something that happened on the ships that Christopher, yeah. Christopher Columbus sailed across <laughs> to America, but it's still very much a problem. The sixth area is oxidative stress, which is this really clever oxidation reduction system that, that goes on. We, we need it for our vascular system. We also need to be able to quench it. So we need all the antioxidants in our diet. We also have particular antioxidants we create within our body, the most important one. And funnily enough, we need sulfur-containing vegetables to be able to produce enough glutathione. Where people can't make enough glutathione, they can take things like NAC and acetylcysteine as a supplement to actually generate more. But it's something that we can measure. If you don't have a diverse diet, chances are you'll start not reducing enough so you move into what we call oxidative stress where you have too much oxidation not enough reduction seventh area we're moving through it now (laughs) it's fascinating i'm loving it is yeah the the seventh area is the neuroendocrine system and the reason that is basically the neurological system so the nervous system that we are not separating from the endocrine system which is the hormonal system and the reason that we look at it in one 
system is because the nervous system and the hormonal system are so intimately involved with one another. So we have this axis, if you like, that, 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 that runs um, through all our key organs, our HPA axis, and it runs all the way into our gut, into our gonads, but it also connects intimately with our nervous system. So we've got, you know, many people will be familiar with the the tenth cranial nerve, the vagus that that mm-hmm. runs from between our our brain and our gut, and that's why we get the sort of gut feeling, and we feel it's a feeling in our brain because they're intimately connected. So, you know, the neuroendocrine system. One way of measuring it is to look at how our autonomic side of our nervous system is working because that's controlled by hormones, but it's also a nervous system, and that that's broken down between your sympathetic nervous system, which is the adrenaline that generates fight and flight, and your parasympathetic nervous system. So when we're breathing, on the out-breath, we're actually moving on to our parasympathetic side, and when we breathe in, we're going to our sympathetic side. So if you are too stressed, your parasympathetic side doesn't get a look in, so you're staying in your sympathetic side, and your heart beats like a metronome. So heart rate variability, which sounds a little bit strange, to have a healthy functioning heartbeat, it needs to move from beating faster to beating slower during your in-breath and your out-breath, which is why we kind of say to each other, if if you're stressed, take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. Or if you look at all the, the oriental meditation techniques, and yoga, for example, is all about what you do in the outbreath because the outbreath moves you to a parasympathetic side. So you can get a heart rate strap. You can link that to an app. I use an app called Elite HRV that allows you to measure the condition of your autonomic nervous system. And that will be a very good indication of where you are in relation to stress because stress is you know, a poor response to stress. It's not stress itself that's the problem. It's a negative response to stress. So again, something we've learned a lot about during the pandemic is is what happens when people are maintained in a state of fear for long mm-hmm. periods of time. They're permanently in a sympathetic state. So every time they watch the news that tells them how many people are dying or, you know, that they can't travel, they can't see their relatives, that keeps them in this sympathetic state. And over time, that leads to massive damage in the body that actually may take years to overcome. System number eight, circulatory system. So that's the, the, not only the, the venous and arterial system that oxygenated and um, deoxygenated blood flows in, it's also your very important lymphatic system. And so uh, that's a whole nother story of how you kind of keep your circulatory system. But the, the shortcut to it is that, you know, you need to have a good diet and you need to be moving properly. Sedentary lifestyles are the worst thing you can do for your circulatory system, both your blood system and your lymphatic system. You have to keep moving. System number nine is your toxic burden and biotransformation. So you've got to control what's coming in from the outside world because this chemical soup of 20,000 or so industrial chemicals that we're all exposed to is a problem. 
And there are some that are much, much bigger problems than others. And glyphosate is right up there as one of the worst ones we can, we can be exposed to. Biotransformation is your ability to break these down. And, you know, your liver and your kidney are your two key detoxification organs. And again, what do they need to function well? They need nutrients and they also need rest and they also need lots of hydration and water. The big tip here is that we, and, and it, obviously we put them under a lot of pressure and we consume a lot of alcohol. That's a problem. But most of us benefit from taking milk thistle. Milk thistle is such an incredibly important herb to help your liver. And because we live in such a toxic, burdened world, nearly all of us benefit from taking milk thistle. System number 10 is your structural integrity. This is the framework. This is our skeletal, musculoskeletal system. And um, again, you see what happens to it in people as they age. If we don't look after the structure that supports us, if we don't, you know, support it in terms of building sufficient muscular structure that supports it and we just let it hang, we will have problems. The tendons and ligaments aren't maintained in a great state of health again. What affects that? Both exercise and diet are really critical to that. But we also need load-bearing exercise and we also need plenty of magnesium, plenty of vitamin D, some Calcium, people get obsessed with calcium. Most of the studies show that we get enough calcium already from our diet. What we don't get is enough magnesium. We don't get enough vitamin D because we're not sun enough. We can take that also as a supplement. And there are particular trace nutrients like boron that we also don't get enough of. Silicon as well, in some cases, that are pretty important. And vitamin K2, not K1, but K2, that's really important for bone health. The last two sections, domains, number 11, is our psychological and cognitive function. That's what's going on in, our, in our, on in our brain. And we've got to remember that essentially what happens there is a very complex system of chemical and bioelectric reactions. Again, there are lots of compounds in our diet that can find their way through the blood-brain barrier. And for neurotransmitters to be balanced, a lot of the so-called mental health problems that we have are actually related to neurotransmitter imbalance. So there are specific cycles of neurotransmitters that you know are our methionine cycle, our folate cycle, our neurotransmitter cycle, our urea cycle, all these different cycles that we can measure, they all need to be working. They all need a soup of nutrients to be able to work. So the starting point actually for dealing with psychological and cognitive function is making sure we have the information there. So it's not just uh, micronutrients like vitamins and minerals in particular proteins and amino acids, so the methionine, the tryptophan, obviously really important, but it also can be particular herbs. So, you know, can be really important for, for, for brain function. So the psychosocial emotional health status is domain number 12. That's the, the last domain. And that really is how we interact with the big picture, with the outside world, with each other. If you're going to look at the single most important area of function 
around psychosocial emotional health status. It is purpose in life. The studies that have been done in the blue zone areas that look at the most long-lived chronic disease-free populations in the world, five different areas of the world, purpose is, of the nine factors that they've looked at, is probably the most is the single strongest factor. We can't necessarily compare them equally because they all have different currencies. But I've spoken directly with the researchers and they all agree that it is purpose that is the most important thing. So if someone doesn't have this, what the Japanese called your ikigai, the thing that makes you throw your legs over the side of your bed (laughs) in the morning and have a reason, and it doesn't need to be you know, that you're going to change the world tomorrow. It may be that you want to see your kids or your grandkids, or, you know, maybe that you are desperate to become a really good knitter. It it doesn't matter what it is, but it's got to be a driving purpose for you that you, you know, it's not so crazy that you can never achieve it either. But finding purpose in life is really, really important. Again, COVID has shown us when you take that purpose away because no one can plan anything because they don't know what's happening the next day. And that's really important. So that's your whistle stop tour through the ANH 12 domain model of the ecological terrain. That's amazing. Wowzers. Fantastic. And yeah, so much come out of that. It's, I think we could just do another whole episode on that uh, for sure. So no, thank you so much for that. Your knowledge is incredible. So so we've covered lots of ground there in terms of the, the dietary factors, the lifestyle factors. So, you know, just to, to sort of wrap up, you know, what could we do as individuals? What would you say is sort of the one key thing we could do to facilitate the sustainable health for ourselves, taking in, you know, those domains into account? You know, what what, what would you say is, because obviously we covered lots of dietary things, you know, doing the exercise, looking after your emotional health and having purpose. I, I do think at some levels it does break down to, at one level, finding peace of mind. Mm-hmm. We have to still our minds. The, the starting point, and I'm, I'm going to say that before I talk about diet and movement and rest, which, which are um, really important, but we have to find ways of stilling our mind and, and stilling our mind, you know, if we're doing that successfully, you'll be able to just take an HRV measurement and you can tell as someone who meditates regularly is going to have a much better HRV score than someone who does. And it's the same reason that someone who's very career driven can do very, very well in their twenties and early thirties but may find that it all starts breaking down in their 40s because the body can no longer keep up with that Mm -hmm. stress. Essentially what happens is that our adaptive range over time, if we don't look after ourselves properly, starts narrowing and narrowing so we can no longer cope with the degree of stress that we had when we essentially had more vigor in the system. Our fuel tank you know, was a little bit more full because we were younger. We regenerated more quickly. So we've got to find ways of, of, of finding peace of mind, and that means taking time to, to breathe properly, to meditate. And you needn't necessarily meditate in a classical way. For me, my, my most important system of meditation is probably the time I do on a bicycle. The, the rhythmic movement of pedaling, which is the same as walking or swimming, anything that involves bilateral movement, 
that isn't too intense. If you push it so hard, it's very difficult to find that stillness. But when it isn't so intense, you actually start triggering the production of endocannabinoids. And, you know, we've got these, these CB1, CB2 receptors throughout our body, not just in our brain. And we feel good on them. So we have to start talking to our endocannabinoid system, which is one of the reasons that CBD as a health product went crazy because people could take it externally, put it in their system. Better than that is to make the stuff yourself. And of course, you know, there are hundreds of different cannabinoids within our system, not just CBD. And we, we, we need to be able to, you know, produce them internally. So take some time out to find peace of mind, really figure out the purpose that you have in your life, write it down and put it up on a wall so you're reminded of it and understand when you start to lose that, that stillness within yourself where you are finding it difficult to, to smile and be happy. Happiness is an incredibly important marker of getting things right in terms of your peace of mind, your neuroendocrine system, your overall physiology, your social, emotional interactions with the wider world. So I'm going to put that as number one. Number two has to be the information that you put inside your body and outside your body. So inside your body is obviously your diet. So, so you know, we've got lots of information on our food for health diet. It's about getting color in, all the information in, and minimizing, you know, refined carbohydrates in particular, um, thinking very carefully about the way in which you cook and prepare your food so that you're not damaging and creating carcinogens in the process, using the right balance of oils, making sure that you do maintain sufficient fats in your diet that varies depending on your ability to be able to process and metabolize fat. So diet is number two. I will say water is also really important. People forget about water quality. Water mm -hmm. in you know, most cities has gone through a human body at least seven times that day. Wow. It is chlorinated. The chlorine in it can form these, these chlorination byproducts that are themselves very carcinogenic. But of course, there's a sea of other things. And of course, the xenoestrogens, the synthetic estrogens that are now present in water, creating absolute havoc with people's hormonal uh, endocrine systems as well. So what I do is I, I use a, a reverse osmosis system that, that and then we put minerals back in the water so that we are able to consume clean water because mm -hmm. essentially municipal water is a, is a toxic chemical soup. The, the next area is, is, has got to be movement. You've got to find ways of, of incorporating a combination of, you know, gentle movement that involves stretching and flexibility that, that really talks to the parasympathetic side of your autonomic nervous system, but you also need to have small amounts of short, sharp exercise. Even people who have, you know, quite developed heart disease, there are a whole range of studies that show they benefit from very short, sharp, it may be 10, 15 seconds worth of intense activity, maybe on a, on a, on a spin bike or something like that. It may just be, you know, body weight exercises, but very short bursts that trigger the mitochondria into action. Otherwise, they will start dissipating. You'll get fewer and fewer of them. The volume of each will become less, and they'll be able to produce 
less ATP. And without energy in the system, all these complex systems that we run in our body can't run properly because they become short on energy. And that the, the final area is really rest. And that, you know, is primarily thinking about sleep quality. People don't get taught a lot about sleep hygiene. They often eat too late in the day. So they're still trying to process their food by the time they go to bed. Some people have late night snacks or midnight snacks, which interferes with the cleanup operation that has to happen in the gut overnight. There's one particular bug called acomancia that is absolutely crucial for that cleanup operation. And if you eat late at night or you eat in the middle of the night, acomancia goes on strike. So you don't get cleanup operation. So we need to find ways of, of making sure that the melatonin is produced adequately. And for adults, that really does mean sleeping in darkness and a lot of people don't do that they are often stimulated by electronic devices late at night they're exposed to a lot of blue light that creates brain waves that prevent process of moving into deep REM sleep you might get very little REM sleep as a result of it that we need so getting adequate sleep not too much sleep for most people somewhere between six and nine hours a range of studies that shown for most people they routinely sleep more than nine hours they actually start developing a range of health problems that are not very different from the people who are sleep deprived but so you know find your optimal pattern for me it's around about seven hours but it needs to be seven hours of quality sleep <laughs> really important to get that sorted and the final thing that outside of all of that you know is really in order to have change, we can't just think about ourselves. We have to think about communities and wider people. And this is what I love about what you're doing at CNM, training people to understand naturopathy. Getting the educational message out about the importance of naturopathy, which is really how we um, coexist with nature and with each other so that we can be healthful, dynamic, vigorous, vibrant human beings. And for many people, that doesn't come naturally. It's something they need to learn to do. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Wow. Thank you so much for all those tips and advice and all your wisdom. It's been absolutely fantastic and so insightful and inspiring. Thank you, Robert. No problem at all. So where can people find more information about you, Robert, and the work that you do? Well, we've got all of it at our website, anhinternational.org. We're actually also, we, we've just set up a charity, so we will soon have information about some of the project work we're doing that really is about making a difference, particularly in more deprived communities through our new charity, which is the Sustainable Health Foundation, and that is at yourshf.org. But basically, between those two websites, you'll find everything, all the links to it. Obviously, we've got a pretty big YouTube channel. We've got a huge amount of videos. We've got an amazing media team that help us make a lot of educational information. But yeah, go to anhinternational.org and you'll find a huge amount of information. You can use the search box as well to search for any topics, but there's 19 years worth of, of data in there. There's many, many books wow. worth of information in that. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And we'll pop those, those details in the show notes so people can, can go and find you. 
Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Robert for sharing his wealth of knowledge and experience with us. You can find all the information discussed today and more about Robin in the show notes on the CNN website at www.cnnpodcast.com. And if you're interested in learning more about nutrition, herbal medicine or naturopathy, check out CNN's range of short courses and diplomas. We have a series of open events coming up and you can find all the details on the CNN website at www.naturopathy-uk.com under the events tab. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe through your favorite podcatcher so you don't miss any future episodes. While you're there, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or review as this helps us when creating new content.